Yeah, Katie then. Yeah, and I'm definitely a geek. Well, I'm feeling a little better this week, which is good. Right now, it's just uh, it's a little busy. Um, it's, you know, like I said, it's the end of the year, uh, end of the school year, and it's the beginning of the school year, um, coming up at the beginning of April. Um, there's a lot of events, a lot of stuff, and, and you know, seasons change, I get sick, so, um, you know, it is what it is. So, just a quick tangent, because it is a teeny bit tech-related. I went to go see a really cool band from Okinawa, Seven Oops, this week, and they're fantastic, but it was a really small venue, and they're on a cafe tour right now, even though this wasn't a cafe. It's a live house, and I've talked about before, live house is like a little house of blues, that kind of thing, um, but I've actually DJed at this place. I, I was really surprised that this was the venue they chose, but it's super small, and um, it was really cool because they have a couple of cameras. Now, they're maybe 15 years old at this point. Um, they're old Sony cameras. They're professional. I mean, they're like, they're like CCD cameras. I mean, they're, they're good quality, but they're four by three and standard definition. But they've always used them when people are DJing. They'll just have them kind of pointed at the stage and they have kind of LCD monitors throughout the venue, even upstairs, so you can see what's going on. But I've never seen them used this way. They actually had someone at the controls and they were directing it as if it was like a live stage show or performance so the person would you know zoom in on one camera and then fade to the other as it was zooming out and then they'd have a third camera and they kind of pan and tilt and i was just really fascinated by it and the problem with being someone who frankly kind of feels like they should be in hollywood you know working on video production instead of teaching kids their abcs is that at times i found myself distracted by the video i was like staring at the video like oh wow that's really oh that was a nice transition and oh oh it moves oh cool and then i found myself like looking at the cameras like how does this tech work you know i I, I couldn't shut my brain off. I'm like, I just want to listen to the music. I love the music. They're great. But it's like, oh, right. There's tech here. Like, what, what kind of tech are they using? And I, I'm like one of those people that I want to go up to the people, the staff afterwards and be like, so what are you using? Like, what kind of switcher? Do you have live preview or, or are you just doing it on instinct? Or are you just like fading and then kind of going for it or whatever? Um, I, I suspect they don't actually have live preview because there were a couple times when they would be way zoomed in or way zoomed out. And it looked like they just kind of faded to and then quickly like adjusted. So I'm guessing there were no live preview, which actually makes it all the more incredible that it was as beautiful as it was. And frankly, I kind of wish that they would just have recorded it to a DVD and sold it. You know, it's a shame because I would have bought it. Um, It was an acoustic set and they lost a member in December. He quit from the group and and they've been, you know, 10 years or more they've been performing. Um, But it's they never really been able to make it too big. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't their best show. Um, although I really enjoyed it because of that, because it was like real. It's like, we're trying, here we are, we're going to give it our all and we're going to just be real with you. The best line of the night was, because he was the bassist. And so the bassist became, has now become the guitarist. You know, he's been practicing guitar for months, but anytime he'd make a mistake, he would say, you know, this is an arrangement. Anytime I make a mistake, it's an arrangement. And one of the other members chimed in with, yeah, and yesterday you had a lot of arrangements, didn't you? But anyway, it's really cool. Um, But one thing that wasn't cool about it was the fact that there were, you know, seats, tons of seats and it was basically almost a sold out crowd and actually there were a few people standing up in the back at the bar but there was one seat up front only one that no one took can you guess where it was if you said to my right you're right yeah i felt it from the moment i walked in um i got in line and suddenly two three people around me were whispering Gaijin, gaijin. Gaijin means foreigner in Japanese. You don't know whether I'm a foreigner or not based on the way I look, but regardless of that, it really was just like off-putting from the start. It's like, I'm trying to go enjoy the show and you're whispering about me, assuming I don't speak Japanese. And 
I sit down in my seat and there's no assigned seating. It's just first come, first serve. So I sit down and I notice the seat's kind of starting to fill up around me. And then there's a girl in front of me. She kind of notices me. She kind of taps her shoulder on, I presumably her boyfriend. And she's like, Kaijin, like, oh my God, there's a foreigner. And like, he kind of like turns around to like peek. And I'm just like, I'm not deaf. And I understand what you're saying. Why are you whispering? I, I don't know. It, it's one of the most frustrating things about living in Japan is that you do feel isolated at times, especially when, and this happens on the train all the times, you know, this isn't train talk time, but I mean, it, this does happen on the train a lot where you'll be sitting there and suddenly you'll have space on your left or your right uh, or both sometimes. Um, you know, people will just get up and walk away sometimes. I've had people do that. I've sat down and people walk away. They stand up and, and go sit somewhere else. I mean, it, it, you know, you don't want to think it's you. You don't want to think it's it's prejudice or something like that. But you can't help but feel that, especially when there's people standing up in the back. There's no other seats empty and except for the one sitting next to you. I don't know. It's it's frustrating to always feel different, you know, and then even with some of the, you know, quote unquote foreigners here, I still feel different because it's like I talk about seven oops or whatever or even tech. And it's just I don't know. There isn't really anyone around me that likes the same things I'm into. Eh, what can you do, I suppose? Move. No, no, no. Sometimes I want to leave. I really, more and more, I feel like I should be working in video production or something somewhere. I love my job and I, I just got my assignment for next year and I got the same same locations and things. But it is like, you know, I kind of wish that I could be doing more with my life, I guess. I don't know. I am an overachiever, if you hadn't noticed that. So, um, and of course, with Seven Oops, um, link in the show notes to a few of their amazing songs they're they're from okinawa uh they're just they're just great every time i see them i want to go to okinawa <laughs> and i'm going to especially this summer i'm going to make a point i'm going to go to okinawa maybe i can see them in concert in okinawa someday that'd be really cool so let's get to the news while everyone including me waits for their education event on march 27th apple has announced that their new apple store located in tokyo's shinjuku district will open on april 7th at 10 a.m and on their website they posted a really cool kind of neon light-esque image uh, and it says shinjuku along with the apple logo and you know apple shinjuku will be the company's eighth retail location in japan but not the first in the Shinjuku district. In 2015, Apple opened a special Apple Watch shop at the Isetan department store. Now, Apple Shibuya has been closed for renovation since November 2017, so it's a good thing that this is opening up. If, if Shinsaibashi here in Osaka is any indication, they need more Apple stores. It's always busy in there, no matter when I go, what I do. I try to avoid it like the plague, just because it's really hard to get quick service there. Something against Apple, don't get me wrong. It's just, it's busy. There's just so many, especially tourists, Chinese and Korean tourists come over here and they they buy iPhones. Um, And it's just, it's really packed. So I hope that they'll be opening another one. They really should open one in Osaka, in Umeda up north. There's plans to open one in Kyoto, but that's a little far. So hopefully they'll get another one within the Osaka city limits soon. And actually, I might be in Tokyo that day. There's a couple things going on. So if I end up there, maybe I should queue up. You know, they usually give out t-shirts, right? 
And speaking of Apple, GymKit support for Apple Watch is officially launched in Japan. Now, GymKit allows for Series 2 and Series 3 Apple Watches to use NFC to instantly connect to and sync data between gym equipment with just a tap, providing users with more accurate data and an easier-to-use experience. This definitely sounds so much more convenient than the current solution that my gym has. Now, you scan a QR code on the machine's screen with a special app, and it attempts to connect via Bluetooth. Unfortunately, this is usually a rather slow process and half the time it just doesn't work. Plus the fact that lately when I try to launch a workout on my Apple Watch, it just doesn't work. I tap the workout and it crashes. It just will spin, it'll hang there, and then eventually it'll launch up again. But if I'm not actively looking at my Apple Watch to confirm whether it's on or not, usually I just tap it and I start the workout. And then after the workout's over, I go to stop it and it never started to begin with. So it's been so frustrating lately. So being able to just tap the machine and sync should make it really easy. And you know, with GymKit, all of these problems should be a thing of the past. Now, even though I'm an Anytime Fitness member, which is where the first GymKit compatible machines are showing up in Japan, Unfortunately, none of the gyms which I frequent in my area have the updated hardware or software as of yet. New hardware is required that supports NFC, and most locations that I've visited, at least of Anytime Fitness, still are using older models of treadmills and bikes, that sort of thing. The Engadget Japan had a report about a location in Tokyo that has support, and based on their experiences, it seems really fast and easy. They were able to pair with equipment quickly with no QR codes or fuss. I'm really excited, and I hope it'll come to an Anytime Fitness near me. So I've been meaning to talk about this for a while. This happened back in February when a designer and typographer began a thread of tweets about things that surprised him on his trip to Japan. He compiled more than 200 of these, and not like the big things that people expect, like the big differences between countries, but little small details that, frankly, you know, even for someone who lives here, you kind of forget about these kinds of things. Some of the favorites I saw include how the vending machines here use lights. When you put the money in, it'll actually show you for example, if something is 100 yen, as soon as you put in at least 100 yen, it'll light up a color to show you that you can actually purchase that, that you put enough money. And as you put more money in, it'll light up the ones that you're able to purchase. It makes it really easy to understand. And also things like how the Tokyo subway, at least certain cars, certain updated newer cars in the Tokyo subway, and I've seen this in Osaka as well, will show an animation as you arrive at a stop. And it shows the position that you're in, in your car. It also shows a diagram of the station, which side the doors are going to open on and where the stairs are. You know, it's really useful. There's also little things like how ATMs here tend to have a hook or some place to hang your groceries, as well as things like when you're playing a video game or a VR game, or if you're going to certain locations and you climb into something or you sit somewhere, a lot of times they'll have a box that you can kind of set your luggage or your bags or whatever in, and it makes it really easy to stash your stuff without worrying about it getting dirty on the floor. You know, so this is a really cool thread, and I hope you'll check out the link in the show notes to all of his tweets. He posted some really cool stuff that, frankly, even living here, like I said, you just kind of don't think about it. On March 15th, Kanagawa Prefecture Police referred a nine-year-old boy from Osaka Prefecture to a juvenile consultation center for allegedly creating a computer virus and then distributing it online from May to June of last year. Now, the Osaka boy is certainly more resourceful than most people his age. And, you know, he told police that he learned how to create the virus by using online videos as a reference and that affected computers will display a series of new home screens in its succession, which will render them 
them unable to perform regular operations. He did confess that he was fully aware that what he was doing was wrong, and he just kind of wanted to surprise his friends. Uh, yeah, there were some fun reactions from Twitter users. One person said, his feature looks promising. I'm sure his skills will be a great help to society someday. And another one said, isn't anyone going to talk about the fact that a YouTuber or whoever explained how to create a virus simply enough for a primary school student to understand? Yeah. It doesn't say what platform he's using, but I'm going to assume it's Windows. And also one person said, this is a demonstration of his natural talent. I hope there's an adult near him who can help him develop his skills responsibly. Responsibly. You know, frankly, I wish I could teach him. You know, first thing I tell him to do, go buy a Mac. No, 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 no. Um, kid, but wow. I mean, this, this kid at nine years old made a virus. I mean, that's just cool. I, I can't wait to see what he does when he's, you know, not breaking the law. And speaking of things you shouldn't try at home, follow up on that YouTube video I talked about where a guy put his GoPro on the conveyor belt sushi. So the conveyor belt sushi chain where he filmed his video is considering pressing charges. The company released a statement stating that the recording of the video was not authorized by our company. And when the video was being recorded, our response was insufficient. We sincerely apologize for the discomfort and the severe annoyance that this incident caused. Severe annoyance sounds kind of harsh, but I think it's probably meiwaku. I didn't look at the original Japanese, but probably is like meiwaku, which is just kind of general annoyance. And they also said the conveyor belt of the restaurant where the incident took place has been thoroughly cleaned and disinfected. And the customer's actions are intolerable from both a hygiene standpoint and in terms of protecting the privacy of other customers. We are currently consulting the local police authorities about the incident. And this is the key point here. To ensure that this sort of thing doesn't happen again, we will be instructing our restaurant staff to be diligently against such actions, and we will be dealing strictly with the uploader of the video or any future imitators, including considering legal action. Yeah, I told you, don't do this kinds of things. You know, Japan really, like I talked about earlier about not putting your bags on the ground that they have things to put them in. Japan takes both hygiene as well as privacy very very seriously. And especially the country's privacy laws are so much stricter in other nations. A lot of times online, you'll see people's faces blurred out in news reports, things like that, because you're, there are certain restrictions and laws in place that prevent you from doing that sort of thing. I think I mentioned this last time, but a lot of times TV shows aren't able to be rerun simply because there's so many people in the crowd and they have to blur everyone's faces out. So you end up with TV shows that have a very short shelf life. You know, dramas, that sort of thing can be rerun, but a lot of the variety shows, you know, I mean, I love game shows personally, and I think everyone knows this by now, um, but there isn't really that kind of game show channel where they, they will show reruns of like 70s or 80s game shows. There's a lot of really cool ones. You know, there was one like American Ultra Quiz and things like that that are, are super popular, but no one knows them anymore because they can't rerun them. And it's a shame. Um, but, you know, privacy versus convenience or that sort of thing, I guess. And in this age of social media, you know, while some people may want online exposure, including some restaurants, frankly, one can make an argument that his goal, his intention was to show the customers, not the food. And some of them probably just wanted to eat their meal in peace. They didn't expect to or want to become the stars of an international YouTube video. And so while Sushido's reaction kind of seems strict or maybe harsh to some people, but they have to kind of consider the feelings of their customers. And they don't want people not coming in there because they're afraid that a copycat's going to put a 
GoPro on the conveyor belt and they're going to be online. As for all that talk about legal action, he's already deleted the video from YouTube and it's not clear whether he deleted it or whether it was pulled, but still, they posted this on March 10th and there's been no announcement they're pressing charges, so it seems like maybe it's just a threat, but regardless, just keep your camera pointed at the sushi instead. Last year, a jumbo-sized plushie of water ice-type Pokemon Lapras went on sale. And Lapras, by the way, is Lapras in Japanese. It was so big that small children could ride on it, imitating how the protagonist of the anime, Satoshi, or Ash in English, went island hopping in a couple of seasons of the anime. Now, let's be honest, though. If you're buying your kid a you know, giant stuffed Lapras to ride on. You want one for yourself, and that's what they're offering. The Lapras you'll absolutely want to ride, as it's officially called, stands 1.2 meters tall, a whopping 2 meters across, and weighs 16 kilograms, meaning that you can use it for weightlifting if you can pick it up, you know. Pre-orders are currently being taken on the premium Bandai website, with shipping projected for July, and the company wanted to remind potential customers that... Lapras can be seen swimming in herds in the anime, although I doubt anyone's going to be ordering multiple units given the size and the weight and the price. The Lapras you'll absolutely want to ride is priced at 79,400 yen or about 750 hunyakers. Think about it like a sofa though and, you know, maybe that's not so bad. Just don't forget your Snorlax bed. It's train talk time! Oh yeah, sound better this week. <laughs> oh man. So the Sakura season, the cherry blossom season, has officially been declared open, and the first cherry blossoms have begun to bloom in Tokyo. And this year, the Tokyo Metro is joining the springtime festivities with a special Sakura train to help draw attention to many of the cherry blossom viewing spots around town that can be reached via the Tokyo Metro. Specially placed stickers along the windows make it appear as if the train is traveling traveling on a track through trees of sakura in full bloom. Wow, that's a mouthful and hard to say. So much alliteration. While stickers on the walls represent flurries of petals picked up on the wind as the train passes. So basically, as, as it's going by, it kind of makes it look like the, the sakura, the cherry blossoms are kind of floating by. Now, they're also teaming up with Asahi, and they've made a name for themselves with their annual lineup of pink cherry blossom beer bottles and cans. And, you know, images of their springtime beers can be found on advertising posters and screens inside the carriages. All right, so it seems like it's a cross-promotion with beer, you know, but drinking in public here is okay, and, you know, it is about to be Hanami season. Earlier, I talked about maybe I'm going to be in Tokyo that weekend, you know, April, and Hanami is, literally, it means flower look. It means to look at flowers. And it's an annual kind of outdoor picnic celebration excuse to get drunk in public kind of thing. People bring stuff to the park and they sit under the cherry blossoms and eat or drink or just generally have fun with friends or acquaintances or people they'd rather be spending other time with. But nonetheless, if I do happen to end up in Tokyo, I definitely am going to check out the Sakura train, which is running on the Ginza line from the 12th of March to the 8th of April. And it's limited to only one of their 1000 series trains. So you might have to kind of wait around a while for it to show up. But if you do happen to find yourself stepping into a wonderland of Sakura and cherry blossoms beneath the city of Tokyo, you can count yourself lucky. So, 
been talking about it for a couple weeks now, and I want to do this right. Uh, I want to talk about one of the coolest pieces of tech that I think Nintendo ever released, and it's really geeky, but this is Zetai Geek Dayo. So I preface this by saying there are a couple of videos that I've seen online, I'll link to at least one of them, um, that maybe do a more thorough job of this. I just kind of wanted to talk about the basics of it. It's called the Satellaview, or Satellaview in Japanese. Now, it was a satellite modem peripheral for the Super Famicom or the Super Nintendo in other regions, and it was released in Japan, and Japan only, in 1995. Now, the Satellaview, I'm going to call it Satellaview, it's in Japanese, but I'm going to call it Satellaview. So, the Satellaview is a portmanteau of satellite and view, hence Satellaview. I think that sounds weird in English, though, so Satellaview it is. Regardless, it was released February 13th, 1995, and it retailed for between around 140 to 180 hunyakers. And it came bundled with a BSX game pack as well as an 8 meg memory pack. Now, the Satellaview system was developed and released by Nintendo, and it was designed to receive signals that were broadcast from satellite TV station Wow Wows. I think I mentioned them in the past as being kind of an HBO-like service. They're, they're known for making and producing movie content. Um, they do a lot more nowadays, but Wow Wow is one of the big premium channels, if not the biggest premium channel here in Japan, on cable and satellite. And they had a satellite radio subsidiary called Saint Giga. Now, Saint Giga was responsible for file server management, maintenance, and for vocalizing the SoundLink games. And we'll talk about what SoundLink was and why it was one of the reasons this is so cool. So just like, think about St. Giga, kind of like the old defunct World Space Radio Network, or perhaps like XM or Sirius in North America. And here's a quick, 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 quick St. Giga history. So in April of 1990, they were founded and they started broadcasts. And five years later, in 95, they started a broadcast for the Satellaview. Now, four years later, in April of 1999, notice the trend, by the way, things tend to start and end in April in Japan. So, But in April of 1999, Nintendo withdrew their support. And the last Satellaview broadcast was on June 30th, 2000. Now, after that, in 2003, they became Club Cosmo. And eventually they got sold. And in 2007, they completely terminated all of their broadcasts. What was really cool about this Teleview games is, like I said, this is a satellite modem, so they would broadcast games that could be downloaded into the memory of the Super Famicom. There were three main formats. There was kind of BS, BS something. So you'd have a game that was released elsewhere, but then brought to the Teleview and they made it BS version. Usually these were stripped down or maybe they had different features or they were like a part of a game or uh, like maybe they just like a single player mode or something like that. So it was technically different than the original cassette version. Um, they also had original ports and conversions and things like that. It would also use this sometimes as a method to release games from abroad that perhaps wouldn't be otherwise financially viable to release in Japan on cassettes. One great example of this is my absolute favorite game of all time on any system, Panel de Pont, Panel de Pont, or Tetris Attack, as it was known outside of Japan. And what's great about Panel de Pont is it's a, it's a perfect puzzle game, in my opinion. It had these really cute characters and fun storyline and and I still want it on the Switch so badly. But when Nintendo localized it in other countries, they changed it to Tetris Attack because even though it has nothing to do with Tetris, they wanted some sort of brand recognition that would sell the game. And instead of going with the original characters that had been created specifically for Panel de Pon, they decided to change everything to Yoshi. And so it became a Yoshi-styled game because Yoshi was a very popular character. People knew him. But this was never released in Japan 
on cassette form. However, they did release BS Yoshino Panepon. Panepon is what we shortened to from Panel Depon to Panepon, right? They released Tetris Attack under the name BS Yoshi's Panel Depon in Japanese specifically for the Satellaview. It was definitely the first example of games being beamed via satellite, and beyond that, it was one of the first examples of digital distribution and seeing how alternative distribution methods could lead game producers to be able to create unique experiences and be able to distribute games that perhaps wouldn't otherwise be financially viable to release. Then there were also some original titles called Satella something, so Satella Walker, that sort of thing. Um, They had quiz games, that sort of stuff. So Nintendo data broadcasts were given a fixed time slot known as the Super Famicom Hour, or the Super Famicom Hour. And during this time, scrambled Satellaview-related data would be streamed via radio waves to be unscrambled by St. Giga's BS Digital High Vision TV. Now, it was a subscription-based service, and they usually played ambient New Age music. So St. Giga's listeners were already equipped with these BS tuners. Now, Satellaviewers who didn't already subscribed to St. Giga's subscription-based service would have to purchase an additional tuner separately for 33,000 yen, as well as signing up for Nintendo's fees and signing up for St. Giga's plan. You know, it was it was a lot of money, frankly. Now, some people also chose to rent these BS tuners. Isn't this a lot of BS? Anyway, uh, for a six-month period at a price of 5,400 yen. Do you see why I never had this? Well, there's a lot of reasons why I never had this. But anyway, um, frankly, even at this premium price, though, there were over 115,000 households who subscribed to this, although this plummeted to 46,000 around June of 2001. But having said that, even with as expensive as it was, it was a really cool attempt at alternative distribution models. This was maybe one of the first times that there was another way to get games other than just on cassettes or cartridges. Now, in other countries, for example, in the United States, Sega had the, um, sorry, Sega had the Sega channel. Um, but, you know, that really never took off either. Basically, it was a, it was like a modem kind of thing that you would plug into your Genesis and you would hook it up to the cable system and you'd be able to download games, play stuff via the cable system, etc., stream games, that sort of thing. You know, Dreamcast did this later on via modem. I mean, there were lots of attempts around this time to do online gaming or online digital distribution. Um, and this was Nintendo's one of their first shots. They also did a couple of things. They did the Famicom Disk Writer, and that was basically you'd have blank Famicom Disk System floppies, effectively. They were like little floppy disks. The Famicom Disk System, by the way, was an add-on only in Japan that was for the the Famicom, the Nintendo. And you would basically have this little, you know, floppy disk drive that you would plug in and you'd be able to play games on discs. There were a lot of advantages to this, but one of which is that they'd have these kiosks. And the kiosks would allow you to take your discs in and you could erase them and then rewrite them and put a new game on there for, you know, a reduced cost because they didn't have to print each and every one of them. So you could have, you know, multiple games on a single disc. You just flip it over and put it on there. Um, they also tried this kind of thing with the Nintendo Power flash RAM cartridge. Now, Nintendo Power, if I say that, most people think of the magazine, but this was actually a Japan-only cartridge that was produced by Nintendo for both the Super Famicom and the Game Boy. And this service allowed owners to download Super Famicom and Game Boy games onto this flash memory cartridge for a lower price than that of the full cartridge. So basically, you'd have these kiosks that would be in places that would normally sell Super Famicom games. And you would take your cartridge in once you buy it, and you could have, I think, up to eight different games. Well, I guess it would depend on how big the games were, but you could have multiple games on one cartridge. So you'd put it in the slot, you'd kind of use the 
controls to select what game you wanted. You put the money in and it would write the game onto that cartridge and then you would take it out and you'd have it. And so even now, if you kind of hunt around at the you know, junk shops or the recycle shops here in Japan, you'll occasionally find these white Nintendo Power Flash RAM cartridges. And they're really cool because sometimes there are games on there that were never released in other methods. So these are actually kind of becoming collector's items and they're kind of rare, getting rarer and rarer by the day. And Satellaview had a similar system like this, and we'll talk about that in just a second. When you'd purchase the Satellaview, it would come with an application cartridge that was titled BSX, the story of the town whose name was stolen. BSX, それは名前を盗まれた町の物語。It sounds better in Japanese, trust me. <laughs> the application on this cartridge was kind of a game, although it was really more like an interactive menu system to be your guide to navigating this Intelliview service. On startup, you would enter a name and you'd also be able to select either a male or a female character avatar. And then you'd move this avatar around a virtual town. Now, houses and shops in the town would serve as download locations where you could download games, particular game data, or even digital magazines. And the download would write this game data into temporary memory locations and they would remain there until you downloaded a new game. And this is the key, is that some of these games you could save onto little packs and game cassettes. And sometimes this was the only way that this was ever released or broadcast. So these are actually becoming really collectible and highly sought after because there's preservation projects that are going on. These people are really incredible and legal issues aside, I find it so fascinating to, to kind of delve into this kind of thing with data preservation. But there's one, Satellaview.org seems like logical, right? Um, and Matthew Callis over there, he's been doing this for years. He you know, archives these things, he gets people to send, they find, you know, these effectively useless now, old Satellaview cassettes and things, and he'll dump them and kind of figure out what's in there and try to preserve everything. Many, if not the majority of these games have never been re-released. They, they only existed on this service for a brief period of time, and otherwise they'll be lost to time. I mean, I'm sure Nintendo has a lot of these in their archives, but there's probably legal issues or other reasons that they can't release them. Talking about preservation, if I can just go on a teeny tangent for a second, you know, this kind of thing is so important for future generations. Um, back in the 60s and 70s, there was a common practice among TV networks to wipe old television shows to save money and space and be able to use these videotapes again and again. You know, one example of this is the BBC wiping a lot of the Doctor Who episodes, and they've just been lost to time. And how how amazing would it be to have those? One of the other ones, big example that I can think of is Hollywood Squares. Most of the original run of the Hollywood Squares with Peter Marshall has been wiped. It was just lost to time. And they found at least 100 a few years ago when they were searching for Dark Shadows tapes. But regardless... Those are so important for future generations. And it kind of seems silly for someone to preserve these games. But I think, especially if the retro trend recently is any indication, there's going to be this kind of loop back. And I think a lot of people are going to be interested in this kind of thing. Anyway, there were also other things to do besides downloads. You could also travel to in-game locations, such as the Wall Newspaper Company, uh, the Kabe Shimbunsha. Uh, and you could read text-only postcard-like messages from St. Giga or Nintendo, and they would announce contest winners or talk about future games or programming schedule details. Um, there were all sorts of really cool things, including celebrity events that they would have. There was an inventory and game currency system, and you could spin this currency on in-game items, such as telephone cards, 
Remember those? Vehicle tickets, fish bait, shoes, all sorts of things. There were, it was really advanced for its time. I mean, there wasn't really anything like this. You know, we kind of look at like Xbox Live, things like that. It seems like something that is kind of typical these days, these kinds of menu systems. Or even I think of something like Katamari Damashi, like um, it's that game where you roll everything up into a ball. You know, there's like a menu system where you, at least on the 360 and the PlayStation 3 version, you're kind of, you know, flying around the map and then you land on somewhere and you, that's the level, you know, I mean, there's lots of things in Mario 64, for example, you're kind of walking around this level and it, it is the menu as opposed to being like a linear game from start to finish, you know, world one, world one dash one, one dash two, you know, Super Mario Brothers or something like that. It's, it's really cool that they were trying new things with the system. So every day between April 23rd, 1995 and June 30th, 2000, St. Giga's servers broadcast material via the BS network to be received and unscrambled by subscribers to Nintendo's Satellaview service. Now, there were games, magazines, and data. You know, the magazines were digital magazines that you could read on screen and they'd have a variety of topics, upcoming video games, music, comedy performances, pop idols, etc., etc. And they would have silent format magazines as well as Soundlink. Now, Soundlink magazines had audio with them and these were performed by comedy units and things. One of the biggest things that Nintendo did was partner with All Night Nippon. All Night Nippon is a radio program that's been going on since 1967, and there were a few games and partnerships and things that Nintendo had, including a, a Super Famicom game or two at the time. And so this was, again, digital magazines. This, you know, this is, again, they're trying really cool things. Um, and the games, of course, is what people came for, I would imagine. So they'd have original titles as well as new versions of Famicom or Super Famicom games, and, and every day they would broadcast something. Sometimes there would also be student works or pre-release versions for upcoming titles, lots of things. And and maybe the most famous of all of these games that was released, and the one that I go back to time and time again, was BS Zelda no Densetsu, Inishie no Sekiban. Uh, in English, they've settled on a translation of BS, The Legend of Zelda, Ancient Stone Tablets. Besides this, there were two other games that they released over the course of the Satellaview's life, including a Super Famicom remake of the original Legend of Zelda that was on the Famicom with updated graphics, as well as just a standard Triforce of the Gods, or, or Link to the Past, as they call it, Kamigami no Triforce. And again, these were just ways you could play through the Satellaview system. But what was cool about Ancient Stone Tablets is that besides, apparently, as far as I can tell, having the first female character playable ever in a Zelda game, as it would take the data from your profile and give you either a male or female character, depending on what you had chosen. Uh, but what was really cool about this was that it could only be played during the broadcast hour. It was in real time. So each episode was one hour long and gameplay was super compressed and really intense. There were cut scenes for loading at the beginning, loading at the end because it would have to save some data. But the game itself would take place in one hour. Usually there's about seven minutes at the beginning and about and I think about seven minutes at the end. Um, so the cut scenes would count towards gameplay time. And because it was live for a long time, there was no way to replay this. It could only be played when it was being broadcast. And one of the reasons for that is that it had SoundLink support. So it would have this live voice content and it would have people talking as characters talking about what you're doing on screen. It would say, you know, something has appeared in the West. You need to go or, you know, for the next five minutes, you have, you know, unlimited arrows or something like that. Or like you'd hear, you know, princess or whoever, help me, you know, kind of thing. It was interactive in a way that hadn't really been seen before. This, again, this isn't, you know, the first broadcast was in 1997. I mean, this is like right around when CD audio on game systems is coming out, you know, PlayStation's about, you know, it's out, say Saturn, but 
it's really this kind of thing that's being broadcast live with voice actors and actresses. It hasn't ever been seen before. And so enterprising people were able to extract a lot of the data from leftover cassettes and game packs and Satellaview systems and things. And they were able to effectively extract the ROMs for all four of these games. But for a long time, they were unplayable because again, it was only designed to be able to be played during that one hour window. Unlike a lot of the other games that were broadcast, which would allow you to download them and play them back whenever you wanted to, you could only play it during that window. So for a long time, people weren't able to play this ever, even with emulators. And finally, people were able to get into the code and kind of rewrite it to make it at least playable, but a lot of the data was missing and it couldn't be recreated, even though, again, it was using Link to the Past, Triforce of the Gods, as a base, so they were able to kind of work in missing elements from Link to the Past using that data as a source, kind of patch holes up. But we didn't really know what was in a lot of those dungeons, so people kind of made it up. And then, lo and behold, someone posted VHS copies of gameplay footage from all four weeks, because it was a broadcast over four weeks, there were four stories, one, two, three, four. And someone had apparently recorded themselves playing this. So not only did it have all of the dungeons, every everything was able to be recreated, including all the audio link dialogue and music. And so what I'll do is when I go play these games, I'll go and find that Nico Nico Doga video that was, you know, was on Japanese video site, Nico Nico Doga. I'll go find that video and start the video and then play and... I'll try to time it along with what I'm playing and it has a timer in the corner so you can see, you know, how much time you have left. And it's really cool because I can listen to what they're talking about and kind of, it's like, oh, I wish I had had this when I was a kid, you know, it, it, it's a really cool experience. And if you have the ability to play it, um, you know, yeah, again, legal issues aside, this, there really isn't any other way to play this. And wouldn't it be amazing if someday Nintendo released this officially, you know, somewhere, anywhere, with the audio link data intact, I just, there's probably legal issues or something, or they just don't have an interest in it. But I think this is one of the coolest lost games ever. And if nothing else, just go check out a video on YouTube or somewhere. I'll link to it in the show notes. And this was actually one of the most popular games because it was broadcast, all four weeks were broadcast once, and then it was rebroadcast in June of 97, and then it was also rebroadcast again in 1998. It was one of the selling points of the service, and it was one of the absolutely coolest aspects of this and i just i find this so fascinating you know unfortunately it was expensive it wasn't perfect the technology just hadn't quite gotten there yet and so in 1999 there were tensions between saint giga and nintendo and they had a rift and basically nintendo pulled their support and so saint giga was able to continue broadcasting what they had done up to that point there was just no new content but for about a year and a couple months until june 2000 they continued to broadcast for this teleview uh and eventually see support but you know i just i love this i think it's just it's one of the coolest things and i still someday am i want to get my hands on an, a, a teleview system even though it's completely useless now um but if i ever find one in a junk shop for you know under 50 hunyakers you better believe i'm gonna buy it you know, I can talk about this on the podcast as much as I want, but check out the links in the show notes to some video gameplay footage, as well as some people who have probably been a little more succinct in their ways of talking about it. But suddenly I have the urge to go play a sound link game or two. Anyway, for now, if you can, please subscribe in Overcast or Pocket Cast or whatever podcast if you choose. It really mean a whole lot to me. The show is also available on Apple Podcasts. If you could rate or review, it'd really help out with discovery and get the word out there. And you can find the show notes for this episode at platypuspodcast.com slash geek slash 21, which is also where you're going to find links to all of my social 
social media. And if you have any comments, questions, concerns, topics, or you just want to chat about anything, especially why this teleview is so cool, I'd love to hear from you. Please tweet them at me on Twitter at KatieDayo with the hashtag ZetaiGeekDayo so I can find them. Until next week, Ija, Katie deshita. Bye bye. Seno, shudo. Hey, no BS. Zetai Geek Dayo is a Platypus Podcast production. Zetai Geek Dayo.